Project Podcast. My name's Austin. We've got a special episode this week. It's been a while since we checked in, so I'm excited to let you know that we've got the live audio recording from the Learning Lounge, which is a kind of an ancillary function of our yoga teacher training program here at Cambio. And it gives teachers in training an opportunity to learn about things outside of the curriculum, to get to know each other. That's the lounge part of the whole situation. And um, in this recording, we're going to recover. We're going to cover the bhakti yoga. A little bit about that. Obviously, that's a huge topic, and could go into a lot of detail. And eventually, the goal is to um, do more of that. But um, this is a nice introduction. So if um, you're a yogi who has um, emotions, this might concern you. If you're a yogi who has a belief or relationship with the divine, this is a talk for you. Um, So pretty much what I'm trying to say is this is a good talk for anybody. Um, But it's about, I think, 40 minutes after the intro was cut out. So... Um, I'll be on the other side, see you out, hope you enjoy the talk, Um, and before we get into it, I just lastly want to say thanks for a fantastic year at Cambio, we're really excited about the new studio opening, still hoping for the end of January, so uh, fingers crossed out there that those of you who this is news to, it's going to be on Pikes Peak and Farragut, uh, which is two blocks west of Union right across the street from Memorial Park. And um, yeah, look forward to continuing to practice with you in the new year. I hope that you enjoy this wherever you're at, running, cycling, lounging, carpooling, whatever. All right, thanks for listening. Who has raise your hand to the degree of your curiosity? Like, if it's a burning curiosity, you're up high. If you're like mild right here, and if you're like in the wrong spot, just leave your hands in your lap. (laughs) Okay, cool. All right, I didn't even look around. I'm just gonna teach it how I was gonna teach it. Um, So what do you? Let's start with this. What do you know about bhakti yoga? It's the yoga of devotion. Mm. Now or no, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. I mean, that is that is what it is. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Did you say something the other night? And I took your class. Was it awesome? Yeah, actually it was remember. Monday, yeah. Could be any time, I just don't know. Yeah. But you said something about, like, dancing and singing and love, like it being from your heart and it's taught from love or something like that, and that's why... Oh, good. That kind of like resonated with me a lot. So clarify that. I said something about dancing and singing in love. This was at the beginning of his yin class, so I was like all turned out, asleep. Was he talking about kirtan? No. Yeah, I was. I was talking about kirtan. Were you? What I was saying is, it's okay. You're in the wrong Okay, so maybe she heard what she needed to hear. Yeah, all I heard was dancing and singing and, and... like love and uh, yoga that comes from the heart and it's taught with lots of love and so I thought that that kind of was really <clears throat> special so yeah. maybe I'm wrong but <laughs> no you're right okay. ecstatic kirtan is a form of bhakti yoga oh it is yeah. okay great so ecstatic dance is like um, so there's different practices in bhakti yoga so bhakti comes from the Vaishnavite uh, tradition in India which is, um, most of us, maybe some of you have heard of Shivite. Most people have not heard of Vaishnavite. So Shivite is people who follow Shiva. Vaishnavite is people who follow Vishnu. And so Vishnu incarnates into, um, I don't really remember where I put my phone. I was recording this, wasn't I? It's on the okay, good. Um, so do you guys know who Vishnu was an incarnation of? Who did he come down as? 
You remember this. You read a giant book about it. <laughs> I know, it's so terrible. We're not going to read that book next year. So. I know, it's all yeah. sad. So Ram is one. Tell me a little bit about Ram. What's his characteristics? What's What makes Ram Ram? He's blue. He is blue. <laughs> Does he have a bunch of arms? No. Oh. What's happening? Are you bringing chocolate? I am. <laughs> He's a great warrior. He's a great warrior. Yeah. So he, he follows his dharma, what he believes his dharma is, regardless of anything else. Yes. And ironically, what didn't come across in that translation of the Ramayana, the Ramayana, is that when one chants Ram's name, it is said that a great sense of felicity comes to them which the book kind of portrays him as a almost an austere kind of character wouldn't you agree and felicity is i had to look this word up myself does anybody not have to look it up joy yeah it is it's like a certain quality of joy that's a type of joy so um but ram is known for being kind of a, a rule follower as well so these different incarnations of Vishnu, you get different characteristics of what Vishnu represents. But by the way, let's step it back. What does Vishnu represent? Do we know? Have we heard of Vishnu? Yeah. So there's the three, there's the three, the Trimurti, the three kind of gods in the pantheon of the Hindu deity um, world. We've got Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Brahma is the creator. The creator. Shiva is destroyer or the transformer yeah Trans- transformers <laughs> woman meets the eye of um, <laughs> so then, well, I missed you buddy um, and then Vishnu then is what if one's the beginner one's the end the he's the middle Vishnu is the middle so what happens in the middle is we sustain things we preserve things so he's, he's the archetype of preserving things and sustaining things. So that way that that energy funnels down into Ram has to do with order, has to do with um, rules, has to do with righteousness, um, which gets Ram into a lot of trouble, by the way. But when you chant his name, it brings you into a sense of joy and the reason felicity, because it's, it's a certain type of joy, it's joy within the way things are. So understanding that things are the way they are and that, and finding joy in that and not wanting to change what we call reality with the big R. Now when these Vishnites are, you know, so in, in old Hindu school religion, um, mantra yoga is a sect of bhakti yoga. Okay, so we all know what mantra is, right? Man is from manas meaning the mind, and tra is to protect or to train the mind. So mind protection or mind training, that's what we use mantra for. Um, and it's powerful because, you know, we have, as I was saying last night in class, if you remember anything other than the, the one thing that you remember. It wasn't correct. Yeah. It, was, it was correct. It was oh, pretty it correct. Oh, okay. It was. Um, you know, we have these stories that we tell ourselves. Like, we always have mental chatter. There's always the yoga students that you either are or you will find and come across many times over who say... You know, oh, I can never meditate because I can't get my mind to shut up, right? <laughs> so, first of all, that begs the question, have you ever experienced experience of no thought? Anyone here? Raise your hand. Have you had a moment when there's been like, my mind is absolutely still right now? But then I thought of it, so it's nothing. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. When did that happen to you? What were you doing? What caused that? Shavasana. Yeah, Shavasana. Mm-hmm. It's not that good. Like, uh, Sports, physical stuff. Mm-hmm. You're in a zone sometimes. Yeah. And when you're in a zone, that's it. Yeah. Just yeah. There. Yeah. So that's single-pointed focus, right? So this is what's so cool about yoga is it's laid out for us with all these specific directions and instructions and reference points about the way in which the power of the mind can work. So, um, so single point of focus isn't quite to the point of what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is complete spaciousness of mind. But you are talking about flow of immersion, which is a step there. It's just a couple steps back from getting to that point yet. Um, in fact, you know, we've got the eight limbs, right? 
Do we do we know what the eight limbs are? Help me remember. What's the first one? It's uh, veganism. <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. Oh God. Um, the yamas. Yamas, which are like the five ways in which you treat others, right? They're the what to do. Niyamas, the five ways you treat yourself. Asana. Asana. Pranayama. These you all know well. Pratyahara. This is where it gets a little dicey. Pratyahara is like turning the focus inward. Stop focusing on the external stimuli. Start kind of engaging with the internal landscape. What's happening within. Okay, so our our portals, our filters to the outside world, all the five senses, right? Some people say they're eight senses because we've got the sixth sense, which is intuition, and that does have a direct connection to the external world. We've got the seventh sense, <clears throat> which is proprioception, understanding where our full faculty is in space without being aware of it. So what my hands are doing back here, well, I'm not seeing them. And then there's an eighth one as well. So after pratyahara comes what? Uh, this is single point of focus. This is concentration. So this is when the muscle of the mind is achieved a high level of functioning. And so single point of focus is when, um, like Thomas Edison has his eureka moment, and in the shower goes, that's how you do the light bulb. Or um, when Beethoven, who was storied to be like a crazy bather. You guys know who Beethoven is? You know, he would take these baths where he would just throw water and be singing you know trying to come up with comp compositions and he'd be throwing water all over the bathroom and it would take the maids like hours to clean it afterwards because he was just a wild bather I don't know <laughs> and like I guess like water would soak through the floor and like his neighbors downstairs would get all pissed but he was just in such a flow of emergency he just had no he was just like you know splashing water and writing Moonlight Sonata and you know the Ninth Symphony and all that good stuff that single point, point of focus, the flow of immersion. And then the next step, seventh step? Dhyana. which is meditation, which is a different kind of meditation than what we think of as what I was just talking about, of like this, you know, when it, you know, kind of preventively we're taught, uh, all right, sit down, focus on your breath, quiet your mind. And that's when we think, well, I can't quiet my mind. I can't meditate. And yoga acknowledges and honors this. It says, well, yeah, this is like the seventh step. This isn't the first step. This is like a really hard thing to do because your mind is essentially a monkey. Um, but the goal we're trying to get to, the byproduct, not even the goal, but the byproduct of bhakti um, can achieve kind of a full circle of yoga, which is hitting that early stages of samadhi. And there's eight stages of samadhi, but the first stages is mind, a stage of no mind. So sama and d, by the way, sama means sameness or evenness. And d is an aspect of the higher mind, d-h-i, the aspect of the higher mind. So this is when, you know, sutra 1.2, do you remember sutra 1.2, the 300 graduates? Nope. <laughs> do you remember the word narodaha? <laughs> yes. Okay. What is the road? <laughs> yes. That's it. Say it louder. Say it for the recorder on the phone. I don't remember. Yoga is chitta vritti naroda. Do you remember this one? So yoga is the state of mind when the disturbances of the mind cease. And only then can we get to access to this higher state of mind. So in yoga we have five levels of the mind. So there's like chit, buddhi, manas, um, and di, right? So getting to the higher states of mind, um, they require these techniques, these, this work. And so bhakti yoga, even though the goal isn't to get to samadhi, the goal isn't to get to that even state of mind, that narodaha, it is actually a byproduct of it. So when we do practices of bhakti, we do find deep sense of peace, deep sense of bliss. So going back to what kind of unfolded this whole tangent was the concept of mantra yoga. And in the tradition of mantra yoga, um, you would go to a guru and you would spend time with a guru. And once you had kind of done enough tapasya and done enough sadhana, so spiritual practice and enough, tapasya means like um, austerities. 
Like your teacher might ask you to like wake up at four in the morning and recite the Sanskrit alphabet. They might ask you to go do a meaningless task that you're like, why am I doing this? And it's so hard and effortful and it seems to be doing no good for anybody anywhere. And it's only at a certain point where your level of surrender to the guru and dedication and devotion is sincere and purified through these actions that the guru would get, then give their students a mantra. And the mantra they would be given would be their ishta devata. So do you remember what the ishta devata is from the 300 hour? What is the ishta devata sign? I think, isn't it the, um, the it's the, the thing that you see as your personal divinity or? Yes, okay. yeah. So it's your personal, it's your personal representation of the divine. Yep. So Ishta is, is self, and Devata is like God, or goddess. It's like the, the non-gender form of God. So they would give you this in mantra form. So I met a guy who did mantra yoga, who had a guru, and he was from India. He was Indian, and he was telling me how his guru gave him Ram. But his son had um, Krishna, and his wife had Vishnu. Which, by the way, they're all Krishna and Ram are aspects of Vishnu. Um, so this is where you get into like the personal flavors of this powerful force of the sustaining force, the preservation force, and how we've already discussed it coalesces in Ram. Krishna's a little different. Krishna's like, what's Krishna like, Suzanne? Krishna? How's he different than Ram? Yeah, his energy's lighter. He's um, he's playful. Is he at the party? He's at the party. Is he, well, he's, is he like... He, the party can't start. That's <laughs> when Krishna gets there. <laughs> he is the party. Krishna's the party. Yeah, Krishna's it's, a... It's like a... It's a very loving party. Yeah. It's a sweet party. The party's like, you know, there's like dancing. There's dancing, there's gopis. There's cows. There's cows to be taken care of. Yes. By the gopis. <laughs> there's a flute. He plays the flute, yeah. He does play the He's flute. The there's a lot of dancing, and there's a lot of lilas. What is a lila? You're asking me? Yeah. It's play. It's the divine play. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, if you find yourself, you know, these these tasks, these tapasyas that a guru might ask of a student to do, the tapasyas, the austerities, also the sadhana themselves, they might be ultimately looked back on very fondly from the student once they've passed that, and they might be considered leelas. But um, specifically with Krishna, like, there's 13 leelas in the... Um, the Bhakti Puranas. Um, so, you know, in the old, um, the old texts of yoga, we've got like different categories of texts. We've got reference manuals that are specifically written for teachers. Then we've got texts that are about um, universal truths. These are uh, these are like. Um, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, these are the Ramayana, so we learn about universal truths, also the Upanishads, but actually, sorry, no, the Gita and the Ramayana fall under Puranas, so these are myths and stories. So the, the old classical texts are three categories, reference manuals for teachers, um, universal truths like the Upanishads and the Vedas, and then the Puranas, which are myths and stories about the deities that we learn about our life based off of theirs. So, you know, same thing in Roman history, same thing in Greek history, same thing in the Bible. You know, we listen about the parables and we learn about how Christ washed the feet of the apostles to show them that the real gift of being who he was was that he got to lead them, that, that he was really more grateful to be serving them than, than they could ever understand to be even his apostles. Um, so this is where bhakti yoga gets tricky because it's got its origins in um, Hindu religion but of course like most of yoga we've found ways to make it work in our culture 
And the reason it's not culturally appropriated, right? Culturally appropriated is the implication is that it's taken away, it's, it's robbed from a culture and then appropriated to have new meaning within that culture, right? So like Native American culture. When we somebody see somebody who's wearing a headdress or something like that who's not Native American, that's that's cultural appropriation. Ah hey, with the nose, the tissue nose. So the difference is India, they, they came over, they brought it, they brought yoga to us. They said, here, have this, do with it what you will, let it serve you, let it enlighten you. And it was a gift. So that's a beautiful gift. And the way that it's kind of come up through the ranks in Eastern culture, some of the old practices um, have kind of gone by the wayside. Some of the traditional practices, either they're not held to such high standard of the technical tradition, and some of them are, are completely gone. Um, so if there's not any questions, let's get into the original practices of bhakti yoga. Questions? I should do have a question. Please. So like for someone who's a total newbie, like what is a good text to like read if there's like a, you know, like if there's a lot of texts that these are, you know, found in and because um, like, I haven't read any of them. I would read them, the Bhagavad Gita because that okay. will give you a cursory explanation of, so this is like, anybody heard of the Gita besides the 300 hour students? Yeah. This is like the yoga text. This is where yoga really gets defined and brought into the world. Um, this is a, like what's called a, a pre-classical text. So it was dated anywhere from like 3000 BC E to maybe some historians say as old as 5000, if not older. A lot of like great yogis like to say, oh, it's way before that. Because it originally was like an oral history, right? So so there's really no telling on And so many libraries have been ruined over the years. Natural disaster and, and <laughs> humankind disaster. Um, but this is where yoga first is introduced specifically, and it's also broken down into its four categories. It's four original categories. And since then, it's grown off into a ton of branches. But originally it was... Um, Raja Yoga, which we got exposed on with the eight limbs. We talked about that already. So those eight limbs, that's Raja Yoga. It means king. It means royal. So it means it's a noble path. It means it's the path for a yogi who is trying to be on an, an ennobling endeavor of the spirit. Um, so that's why it's called kingly yoga. Then there is um, Jnana Yoga, which is yoga of wisdom. And there's been great Jnana Yogis. There's bhakti yoga and there's karma yoga. Bhakti yoga is the bhakti, it's devotion. So, but what that means, it implies this is the yoga of emotion. So this is, all paths lead to the same end, right? They all lead to what we've actually in the West called enlightenment. There's not a lot of books that actually use anything near the word enlightenment. Um, in fact, even in Buddhism, you know, we talk about Buddha being enlightened. Buddha specifically means the awakened one. So, and by the way, this buddhi, also the D, this is an aspect of mind, the awakened mind. This is the mind we're trying to get to when we calm chit down, the chitta, when we get to that nirodaha. Um, and then there's karma yoga, the yoga of action. Now, you can use bhakti yoga and karma yoga. You can use bhakti, jnana, and karma. Um, use any different mixture of, in fact, we all use hatha yoga, right? We use a forceful asana practice. And then when yoga starts coming off the mat, that's more of a karmic yoga. When we do our practices with ecstatic kirtan, you know, and get all freaky-deaky, <laughs> singing weird Sanskrit words and dancing weird, and, you know, that's bhakti yoga. And then when you are here tonight, this is a form of jnana yoga. This is a form of increasing your knowledge and study. So when you use svadhyaya, you know, that niyama um, of self-study and, and scriptural study, that's you're doing jnana yoga. So... The difference, though, is understanding how you are inclined. So some people are naturally inclined to be a bhakti yoga. And this, of all of them, the hardest one to fake the funk on a nasty dunk is <laughs> bhakti yoga. You can't just be like, I'm going to cultivate a sense of bhav. So bhav is a word we haven't talked about. Bhav is short for bhavana. Bhavana actually means literally cultivation. But what it implies cultivating is what we actually have kind of shifted the meaning of what the inferred meaning was to the implied meaning over time. So the difference between denotation and connotation is that originally, bhava works hand in hand with sankalpa. 
right? So sankalpa is like your intention. Like when we set an intention for class, that's our sankalpa. It actually means creative resolution. That's the specific definition of sankalpa. But sankalpa doesn't go anywhere. We've learned long that the road to hell is paved in what? Good intentions, right? So good intentions on their own are nothing. It's actually has to be measured and tempered by bhavana and the way that we cultivate ourselves with those intentions over time. Um, and so really the, the deeper implication of what bhavana is cultivating, the heart of it, is love. Because devotion does, means nothing. And, and devotion is a specific word that comes up with bhakti. And I want to ask you why you think they use devotion instead of faith, instead of dedication, instead of surrender, instead of um, obedience. Why devotion? There's kind of like a love aspect to that. Yeah. You're, if you love something, you're devoted to it rather than just like strict just obedience because I, you know, have to. Or Something is more deeper. You want to practice or want to be, know better or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Both. Yes. Anything else? Devotion without love. I can't remember where I saw that quote, but it becomes like like dried up and bitter and yes. stuck. Yeah. Like you don't actually grow in any way anymore. It, and in fact, in this sense, in a practical, like systematic sense, it becomes dogmatic. Mm-hmm. So bhakti yoga without sincerity, without authenticity, becomes very um, dogmatic. And the truth of the matter is, is that bhakti yoga requires tolerance above and beyond everything else. So it is the, the yoga of, you know, we talk a lot about um, here, our, our mission at Cambio is accessibility, right? And, and that, that's the conversation that is that, you know, yoga doesn't happen without, without tolerance. And so at the very bottom of the mountain, I may see you over on the karma side trying to get to the top of the mountain with your actions. And I may see somebody else over here on the other side of the mountain trying to get to the top of the mountain with knowledge. And I may see somebody else on the other side trying to get there by way of virtue. That's Raja Yoga, right? And here I am trying to get to the top of the mountains by cultivating purified, high vibrational emotional content quality in my body. Trying to be a grateful human being, trying to be a loving human being, trying to be kind, trying to be compassionate. These are the qualities of a bhakti yogi, but like to the nth degree to a blissful degree. And a real bhakti yoga does not give a shit, excuse my French, doesn't give a miad about anybody else around the mountain, how they get there. And that's how you can tell if, if somebody is not authentic in their devotion, if they are, you know, like me when I first became a vegan. You know, I wanted, I was so pissed at everybody. <laughs> I was like, what's wrong with everybody? And that's, that's how I know it wasn't coming from a place of devotion because it was, there was so much judgment in it because I was also unraveling my own conditioning. That's why the practices of bhakti yoga are as such because they are meant to strike at the very core of the way in which our vasanas, our conditioning, have created unconscious responses towards reality. So these are called samskaras, right? The way that we just respond to the world. So when um, it, it's hard to even be aware of because, again, we come back to this place of, well, I can't meditate because I can't get my mind to shut up. But even in all that mental chatter, at the very, very, very root of it all, there is a theme. There is a story that is... There's an author, you know, that is creating a story that all those mental chatters are rooted in. And we may not be aware of them. And in fact, many of us keep the mental chatter going, so we're never aware of what the root belief system is. And for most of us, our belief system is something that is toxic. We have psychologically toxic belief systems that are impeding our spiritual growth and development. And we can't wish them away. We can't asana them away. We can't pranayama them away. Really, the way to get at these is through bhakti yoga. It's through devoting to something higher. And so here's a, here's a very practical, real-life case in point of this, is that 
people who are addicts. You know, if you've ever had addiction or been around addicts, well, hell yeah, they want to quit, right? The amount of desire in them, especially after they've ruined every relationship they have, right? And they've gone up, you know, ruined every good grace, second chance, jobs, relationships, everything's gone. Don't think that they, it's not because they don't wish they didn't have an alcohol problem or a drug problem or sex addiction problem or codependency problem. No, it's because the mind works in layers, again. So yoga classified it in their own terms, and now in Western world, we're starting to understand that there's different parts of the brain. There's the reptilian brain, there's the mammalian brain, there's the prefrontal cortex, the executive functioning decision-making brain. Well, part of the problem is, is that by the time you're compelled to smoke or drink or do whatever it is, well, the prefrontal cortex is has no control over it, has no power. The executive functioning part of the brain, it's already a lost cause. By the time you actually do it? <clears throat> by the time the impulse hits you, by the time you're compelled to do it, you can't, you can't just derail the train by saying, well, since I don't want to do that, my, my intellectually I don't want to do that. You're being driven by something much deeper is what I'm saying. People who are addicted to things, it's not the same part of the brain of desire. Of, of thinking I don't want to do that. It's not the preferential side of the brain. So there's a difference between a deep driving desire and our preferential brain. Our preferential brain goes like, I like the color yellow, I don't want to fuck up, I want my peers and my family to respect and love me. But if something comes from below that, below the surface of the conscious mind, and we have many functioning faculties within the mind that are what's called pre-conscious. So you have your conscious mind, you've got your unconscious mind and subconscious mind. Unconscious and subconscious minds are what are called pre-conscious. They happen and affect us before we're even aware they're affecting us. Now our unconscious mind we can tap into. It takes meditation, it takes a lot of deep, sincere practice. Our subconscious mind is completely off limits. Like that's the dark waters of the Pacific Ocean that have yet to even be explored, right? We don't have the faculty or the technique to do it. But we Oh, but it's possible? Yeah. For sure, absolutely. I mean, that's what like these great Michael Jordans of the mind, like that's, you know, that's that's who, they, they're the ones who've written the words that we're studying as yogis today. So at the deep heart of the subconscious mind, that's where we've been told and what we're learning that we're all the same. That mind is the same, it's not, that you're a good person, you're a bad person, you're a neutral person, right? That's not the truth. The truth is that you're just a person. You're either thinking in a way that's gonna harm somebody or not, and that she's either gonna like that or not. And you're speaking in a way that's gonna harm somebody or it's not, or it's gonna benefit somebody, or it's gonna be neutral, right? So the, it's the thought that turns into the word, it turns into the action, turns into the character, turns into the destiny. These are the things we judge people on. But the truth of the matter is, these are just peripheral and temporary aspects of something that is not only universal, but also infinite. So the, the mind, the root of the mind, the big S self, is, has as much greater implications than, um, you know, I go murder somebody and spend the rest of this life in jail. You know, also remember that this is all philosophy coming from a system that believes in many lifetimes. You had your hand raised. I was gonna say, are you referring to like the vehicles, like those, like you know, like beliefs? Yes, and... totally. So we can't just say, well, I mean, it is helpful to raise awareness and acknowledge. Okay, yes, I'm an addict, or whatever the vehicle is. It may not be addiction, but that was the example I was using, right? But to really get into it, we need to, we need to understand that the compulsion is coming from that pre-conscious stage. And it's acting on the body, creating an autonomic nervous response. That once I start to sweat and think to myself, oh God, I need a hit, right? Well, my prefrontal cortex is useless. It's too weak. It's like putting, you know, it's like, it's like the whole US Army coming after you and, and I'm like, handing you a pistol and saying, go do your worst, you know? It's just never gonna win. 
So we have these practices from bhakti yoga, which ask us to tap into something greater than ourself, our smallest self, our ego, which is useless against these 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 conditionings, these vikalpas, these uh, samskaras. And we say, okay, I, I surrender my powerlessness and tap into being a channel to be guided by the grace of something greater than me. And that's the heart of bhakti yoga. So that's what you're really devoting yourself to. Devoting yourself to something beyond just virtue. That's raja yoga, right? That's just that's just a goal, an ideology. What we're saying is that bhakti yoga is an approach towards a personal connection to and embodiment of the divine. So let that soak in for a minute. Because that's that's something that goes a long, a long ways beyond most people's appreciation for religion and spirituality. Because not only is it like, you know, we have these different relationships with God. Some people are, you know, God, they, they only consider God transcendent. That there's this force out there that doesn't really listen to my prayers and there's no way to contact it or connect to it. But I do believe that there is a God, you know, of course there's the atheist too, but then there's the next layer of people believe there's a God eminent. That God is around, it's, he's in everything, and he can, we can connect to him, and we can contact to him through prayer, and this and that. And then there's a God imminent. And that's the one, the divine spark that lives within you. And so I'm not telling you what to believe, by the way, with any of this. I'm just saying these are concepts. And the, the concept that bhakti yoga has developed on is that, yes, there is a God transcendent, there is a God eminent, and there's a God imminent. And all three are omnipotent, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. So the really difficult thing, though, is that if you're a person who connects really strongly with the God transcendent or eminent, that means you connect with God in a disembodied form. You connect with a God that's more of a force and an energy. And, and bhakti yoga may not be a natural thing for you. It may not be an easy way for you to tap into getting to the top of that mountain, right? But for some people, for a lot of people, especially, you know, the Christian religion is based off of the same concept that, that God is a, a personal, not transpersonal, but, but a personal relationship is something within you. You know, the Christ consciousness, this idea of um, heaven, not being a, you know, the, the idea of the sky religion that heaven was some other place, some other location at some other time. This is kind of a, a later edit in the Bible. You know, some of the early works of, of Jesus' words are, you know, that he was within, within each one of us. Um, so before I go into the practices, any questions up to now? Is this too much? Is this too deep? No, I was just thinking when you think of it, because I was raised Christian, and I had so many Christian kids totally thought Jesus came and lived inside your heart, inside a little house, and just sat there on his throne. Mm. But it just made me laugh, because I'm like, they, but there were some, like, as we grew up, people were like, I really thought he was in there, like, sitting on a chair, like, inside my chest. Not a bad example, but it's cute. Yeah. Imminent. Yeah. Yes. And there's different words for that, but um, we'll go with that tonight. So, because you can also say personal, impersonal, and transpersonal. Right. Yeah. That's cute. Can I add something? Please. Um, this is like a, a quote that's been kind of with me recently. Um, it actually comes from the, the deity Hanuman, who says, like, so Ram asks Hanuman, who are you, Hanuman? And Hanuman says, well, I, um, I'm you, Ram. So, like, Ram is, Ram is God. So Hanuman is saying, like, we're, we're the same, we're one, right? That's the, the imminent God that Austin was talking about. And then he says, but when I forget that I am you, then I become um, your child. So like that's the, the eminent God or the God around. And then, um, and then when I forget that I'm your child, then I become your servant. And so that's like that really external, the, what did you call it? Transpersonal. The transcendent, the transcendent or the God, yeah. Transcendent, yeah. 
So it's, it's like you have some of these same concepts throughout, you know, across different spiritual practices. Yeah, so the cool thing with bhakti yoga is you can plug it into your pre-existing belief systems. So what I was saying earlier about that mental chatter, the root of that story, that theme, might be toxic. It doesn't mean you need to throw the baby out with bathwater. It just means that you have the ability with these practices to rewrite the script. But it's not like you need to figure out what the plot is and who the characters are. Because guess what? Starring role is God. And you're the supporting role. <laughs> That's it. It's two people. It's a two-man act or two-person two play. And the, the theme is union. You know, that's the, that's the moral of the story is, you know, Jesus talked about the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, this goes back to the Rumi poem that I read last night in yin class, if you remember that. It was the majesty and helplessness. The quote, the poem is something to the effect of check in with your heart and the Lord of your heart. For even copper doesn't know it's copper until it's turning into gold. Just as your loving doesn't know its majesty until it knows its helplessness. So what does that mean? What do you? I mean that's kind of highfalutin. It can't know it, that last part. Your love, your loving, cannot know its majesty until it knows its helplessness. So go back to why I, why I brought that up. The meek shall inherit the earth. I think if you were never sad, you would never realize how happy you were. Do you know what I mean? Like you would never be. Yeah, the suffering. You, you wouldn't be grateful it. for certain moments if certain. I don't know. If things were just happy and wonderful, twenty four seven. Then, I mean, I guess wouldn't that be nice? But yeah. you know, we wouldn't learn. I don't think from right. from these processes and these maybe necessarily. This, the myths. Unhappiness. Even the myths. Sure. Like the story of Jesus. Not saying it's a myth as in it's fake. It's, myth in the, the old sense of the word. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, it's just a story everybody knows. You know, who suffered greater than Christ in the Bible? Nobody. Nobody. And yet he was the one who received the fruits. Right? Same with all of the Puranas. All the old stories in the Hindu pantheon. Same thing. It is Krishna, Ram. They all suffered the worst. And it's through the suffering that they inherit the earth. It's through being meek. It's through being humble. And, you know, what is the old quote about? Um, Jesus says something. I'm going to butcher it. Because I keep thinking of the lyric, heaven is a place on earth. But there is a quote in the Bible where Jesus says something about being heaven on earth. Anybody help me out? Got it, you got it? Are you looking it up? Yeah, I'm gonna look it up. Is it the Father's Prayer? Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be the name. No, it's not that. What? The Kingdom of Heaven is something about the Kingdom of Heaven is a place. Anyway, that's the gist of it. Is that you know, the the concept is Christ consciousness, this connection to your own inner divine, your own resource, your own power is. There's great responsibility that comes with it. It's here, available to you right now. But that responsibility is the the majesty of it can only be understood, can only be realized through the helplessness of it. And so, by surrendering again, just the way an addict surrenders to a higher power to say, "This is greater than I, and I can't I can't stop smoking, I can't stop drinking, without guidance of either grace or you know an atheistic guy." So. So that's the concept behind bhakti yoga and the practices, the three practices that um, that you can use to flip the script of that fundamental belief system that ultimately affects all of the mental chatter at the the surface of our experience in our mind and our preferential mind um, is mantra. Darshan and and in bhakti yoga there's not really a word for it that I found because we practice as I was mentioning last night in the yin class we do the ecstatic kirtan so it's a, it's a dual part thing so kirtan which is a Sanskrit word for meaning song of the lord and ecstatic dance which is obviously there's there's no Sanskrit there but um 
the closest thing I would say is the word sahaj, and spanda sahaj. So do you guys know what sahaj is in Sanskrit? Do you remember it, Anna? No, it made me think swaha. 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 Um, No, I'll know it as soon as you say it. It is, yeah. My brain's not in it today. Free or natural. Free or natural, yes. And it implies movement. So sahaj is like, you know, sahaj is a very advanced form of practicing physical yoga. Sahaj is like kripalu, you know, that you practice for years very technical forms of asana and then at a certain point they just like say okay now you do whatever you want and you you actually listen to the spanda inside the spanda meaning pulse meaning the spontaneity of information coming from the divine spark within yourself that leads you to follow you know and create sahaj so that's really the the foundation of ecstatic dance even though when you really look at ecstatic dance the way it's practiced in the west it doesn't. It has more to do with like a dance background um, from Gabrielle Roth and her whole development of the five rhythms in the '60s at Esalon and and Kripalu Yoga Center. But it goes much deeper than that because the Sikhs, who are kind of like the, um, they're the mystic Muslims. You guys familiar with the Sikhs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know the the whirling dervish that they do. That is the that is the same thing, and they go to these mystical states. That is exactly what the Bhakti Puranas talk about, is the byproduct of doing any of those Leela practices, the playful practices. They're all playful practices. Um, we didn't talk about Darshan yet, but you know, these, it's story that like some of these um, Sikhs, they would go into these whirling dervishes for like eight, 10, 12 hours. And have you ever done it? I actually had a, a teacher guide me through it one time. Uh, a really interesting guy named David Sai. He was one of the best yoga teachers I've ever had. He had a background in theater, and he was English. So he was just so, like, good at making... Yeah, he like... It was like a yoga class taught by Jean-Luc Picard. That's great. <laughs> but he was like a Sufi, you know? He had, like, a Sufi background. And it's a really simple thing. Um, we can do it if you want to, but... It, it's literally super easy, and it's not as weird as, like... It's not going to make it feel super weird. Um, but um, and then there's darshan. That's the last practice that I want to mention. And there's there's more. You'll find more because we barely even touch the surface of bhavana. Um, and I think that it's important to understand that concept more. So I, I want to ask you questions about that in a minute. But lastly, when I um, did my 300-hour teacher training in Austin, we did it at an ashram called the Radha Madhav Dham. And Radha is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is totally it took me two years because we went back to that place like two or three years finished our training I could never say it and now it's like now that I'm finally never say, going back there Radamadabdab yeah. so Rada is her name and then Madav Dam is it means in, in holy virtue of Rada and what's really cool is that um, in their form of bhakti yoga, and they are bhakti yogis. Like they're, every dorm room has speakers, and so every morning when they go down and do their practice, their kirtan in the morning and every night, it is pumped in every room of the place. And, but there's a volume knob. You can turn it Right. You don't have to drink the Kool Aid. Um, but the Kool Aid's delicious. And they actually do like a wandering kirtan in the morning. So they, you know, they walk around the whole grounds and it's, it's just phenomenally beautiful. If you're ever in Austin for any reason and you can remember, but um, bum bum, you know, <laughs> just the, the Indian, the Indian constituency, the Hindus in Austin all go there on Sunday for their kind of like church. So it, like, it's literally like just a ghost town. And then on Sundays, there's like 800 people there all eating lunch. And you're just like, what is happening? It's crazy. And, and they're like, yeah, it's, it's really cool. Uh, I bring it up, though, because this is where I was ex- exposed to Darshan for the first time. So have anybody heard of Darshan? Darshan means um, to gaze of the holy. So they'll have a leela. And it's literally a life-size 
the 3D diorama of one of these plays of Krishna, these 13 fabled plays of, you know, when Krishna threw a party with his gopis. And they have this, this one depicted behind a curtain. And at a certain time for like a certain amount of time, sometimes it's 20 minutes, sometimes it was two hours, you would sit down front and you would get your mind right through curtain and then they just reveal it and pull the curtain open. And Laura and I were kind of like, this is going to be nothing. But you sit in front of it and even though, you, I, I don't know, there was something strangely powerful to it. And I don't know if it's like the metaphysical aspect of thousands of people over decades projecting you know all this bob into this scene but when you see it the way it's lit and it's just so beautiful and well and it's like i remember like laura was really profoundly like she was she was like you get stuck with it you're you're literally like you get kind of paralyzed and you're kind of like you're in this state of like transmission with it and um so a lot of times when you see if you ever get a chance to go to india the the concept of darshan is really powerful. You'll see um, Indians get... The gaze of India as a country, very powerful, very transfixing. And there, there is something to looking through this reality, this temporal reality. And if you look at something long enough, if you stay with something long enough, even if it's mantra, you start to get into a deeper reality of these things that we take for granted. You know, because our brain is the brilliant, most brilliant computer on the face of the earth, but it still is limited to the amount of computations that it can make. But if you continue to pump the same computation in, well, if the incoming stimulus doesn't change, what the brain can do then is tap into a deeper meaning with it. It can start to say, okay, this is normally how we deal with this, just the, the surface level computation of this. But then over time of repetition through mantra or repetition of gaze through darshan, or repetition of movement, like the whirling dervish, which is just one movement over and over and over again. All of a sudden, the mind can start to break down the way in which we filter this sense of reality into a deeper sense of reality. And then the byproduct of that, and those are the bhakti yoga practices, the byproduct of that is that we fall in love, fall into a blissful state, we fall into love with things just as they are in a way that is profound and way deeper than what we think of as love in terms of like creating expectations for things. All of a sudden it's a free love. It's truly unconditional love. Like a lot of times people say, oh, I never knew what unconditional love was until I had a kid. And then you start to ask, well, do you want your kid, you have expectations on your kid? And they're like, oh yeah, I want to go to college and this and that and don't want to be a drug addict and this and that. It's like, well, it's not unconditional love. It's just a deeper level of love. Unconditional love only lies at the level where there are no expectations. And this can only be achieved through a direct experience of the divine. Mic drop, that's the end of the discussion. <laughs> Puppies can get you close. I have a quick question. Yeah. Um, at Shoshone in the fire temple, yeah. at night when we had that like ceremony where we were sort of like going around the fire yeah. and the rice in the fire and stuff like that, that's, is that, is that that's bhakti a, yoga? For sure. That can, okay. That's definitely, I think there's a very strong bhakti feel. That, and that that's the whole point is that what I've expressed to you just most... Uh, recently was bhakti in its traditional form. So there's many forms of bhakti that I want you, I think that's my big takeaway for you is in what ways are you already in contact with the divine in your life, the personal form of the divine, and in what ways are you already practicing bhakti? So you can start to use affirmations to rewire the brain, that foundational belief system to try to flip the script of your life. I would suggest though that there is a really potent power in using Sanskrit mantra that goes beyond the mind's ability to fight against come on in, you're fine. I just forgot the line. You know, if you use English words, well those are concepts that are framed in a finite definition. And because of that, they're susceptible to lose arguments that the mind will throw at it. Right? So that's why affirmation in English language, that's why mantra, one of the beautiful things about the whole mantra yoga tradition is that a guru gives you a mantra, he doesn't tell you what it means. And in fact, what Ram means in a general sense is meaningless. Because all of these mantras 
are supposed to be personally revealed to you only through experience of practice. So everything we've said tonight doesn't matter if you don't go practice it. All of this isn't a take my word for it. All of this is, if you really want to see for yourself, you must go see for yourself. You have to be devoted. You have to go put the time and effort in. That's why, you know, a lot of times people want to pay too much for yoga because they just think that if I pay more, then it'll take care of the problem and I won't have to do the work with it. And they, they have an undervalued, you know, they have a, a misperception around values with things, even with cars, right? Well, I paid more for this car, it shouldn't be breaking down. What the hell's the problem? You know, but it's the same, it's the same way with, you know, the work we have to do to develop ourselves spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and physically. You know, all the five layers, all the koshas. It's all, <laughs> it's all not only never-ending, but it's all your problem. <laughs> Nobody else's, no matter how much you pay for it. But the beauty of it is, with bhakti yoga, is you can fall in love with the process. It doesn't have to be tedious. It doesn't have to be a struggle. It doesn't have to be work. It's always going to be difficult. It's always going to be a challenge. But how can you reframe it to where that challenge is something that you crave and whets your appetite versus a challenge where you get up in the morning, you look at your alarm clock for 40 minutes before you even turn it off. Just buzz in your face. Well, I feel um, like this wouldn't be proper to end. Oh, did you find it? We did. If you just want to know. <laughs> yes. I had to ask my husband. He knows it backwards and forwards. Good. So he said, uh, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is within you. Mm. There we go. Mm-hmm. Jesus was right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jesus was real. Right. He was, talk about a bhakti yogi. Yeah. Jesus yoga was, he was the most devoted, you know, like even at the very end, he's like, why have you forsaken me? And then he's just like, wait a minute, you know, he had his last temptation and then he finally still gave himself everything of himself over to God. Um, so yeah, feel it out. You want to chant some rum? There's different ways of chanting. What I want to do with this whole thing is break this out into much more educational pieces so I want you know if you're interested look out for that we're going to do some um, off the mat yoga projects hopefully once the Pikes Peak schedule and the Pikes Peak location gets all kind of on track but um, there's a lot more to this stuff if you're interested so if you are keep an eye out one easy way to start to explore and experiment with the discomfort of what might be your emotional body. Because, by the way, you can also use this type of yoga to do what's called spiritual bypass and ignore the emotions. But, by the way, they never go away. And if you don't deal with them at some point, they're going to reckon with you. So, um, if you want to explore the yoga of emotions a little more in depth, I encourage you to come to Ecstatic Curtain Talk next Saturday. Isn't that convenient? What's coming around? Did we mention the 300 hour? Thank you guys. I wish I could lounge. I'm going different right now. Alrighty, so there we have it. Nice little chat about Bhakti Yoga. Thanks for listening. If you've made it this long in the podcast, I appreciate you. Um, and do please forgive any of the, um, you know, the proper improper pronunciations and and of course, um, you know, the the sound recording is not the greatest. Um, a lot of static and ambient noise coming in. That is something that will change when we start to do these things at the new studio. We'll have a dedicated room where we can hold these and it'll create a lot more of a controlled sound environment. So um, if you did take the time to listen to this, I bow to you. I honor the light within you. Namaste. Look forward to continuing to share the yoga with this online community. 2019 Yoga Living Project. Oh,